This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Career Reflections from Inside a Corporation Giant, 1964 to 1981. The subtitle is Plant Level Experiences in the Automobile Industry, and the author is Jim Serafin, and Jim joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jim. How are you? Glad to be, be with you. Well, great to have you with us. How many years at General Motors? Uh, it was uh, close to 18. 18 years uh, during the heyday, during what we talked about as the golden years, and you were right there uh, on the in a metal casting plant in Buffalo, New York. That's where... You started, I guess, and that's closed down now, and and you're going to tell us about some of your experience, how you learned your trade, and eventually went to college and uh, promoted to supervisor of a critical department in the plant. I mean, you saw it all. You did it all. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was in it. Uh, that's no doubt about it. Uh, I, I, I would like to mention uh, how I started. Uh, you know, I went to a, uh, a trade school, you might say, yeah. a vocational school. And that's where I took uh, the, the trade of pattern making. Now people would think of it as, oh, was he a dressmaker? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pattern making slash model making. Uh, that's probably the more current term. Hmm. We made the, you know, you make the model in, that goes into a mold, which the metal is eventually poured into. And that's very, very basic, but that's how it, that's how you I mean, that was back in the days Back in the days when computers, we didn't even talk about, or maybe they were just a dream. No, it didn't have, didn't have a, uh, a radio was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had a slide roll. <laughs> Nobody knows what I'll a slide roll is. I'll tell you what, it was, it was good times, though, really. Uh, sure. But anyway, uh, you know, so out of, that was four years of training right there. The, the afternoon was, was, was shop. Okay, the morning was the drafting, the math, and the history, and all that. The afternoon was the shop. So there was four years there. And then I worked at a couple of small shops. Finally, after one year of, this is interesting, I called the, the uh, training department at, at uh, Chevrolet plant uh, once a month for 12 months. And on the 12th call, they said, you know, we just opened up some spots. Come on in and have a chat with us. Wow. So it took me a year of phone calls just to get in there. So, you know, when we talk about the college kids coming out wanting to, you know, uh, run a country, uh, a company in three years, uh, it doesn't happen that fast. And well, so uh, I did an apprenticeship over there at GM. Uh, that was a five-year deal. I, I did it in four because they gave me some credit from another plant. Uh, and that means you were paid a whole lot less to do that, right? Uh, as an apprentice, right? I mean, you were yes. you were you were classified yeah. as a student, really. You learned from from the uh, mechanics that were there, the, the journeymen, right? Uh, you cleaned the shop, you you emptied the waste cans, you changed the grinding wheels, you did all that stuff, you know, the grunt work, wipe down the machines. Yeah. It's like in a, being in the navy, you might say, you know, cleaning the ship down. Uh, once I got through that. Uh, 
my reward was uh, going on to second shift because that's where all the newbies went. So I was working from, you know, 3.30 till 11.30, 12 o'clock. So that, that, was, uh, that was my life for quite a while. But af- after uh, several years of that, I said, you know, uh, I just don't like where I'm going. I, I, I need to do something. And uh, I read about, I, I write about a friend of mine that was uh, a lathe operator in the shop. And he was going to school. He eventually got his master's and Ph.D. and left. Uh, but he convinced me to, to, to start school again. And that's what I did. Uh, how old were you? How, how old were you when you started school again? Man, I'll tell you, I left GM at 38, probably, uh, probably in my mid, uh, early to mid thirties. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Cause I was out of GM at 38. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I went back to school. I was uh, working nights and I was uh, going to school, uh, day school program. Uh, and the last two semesters I took full-time courses and worked full time, and it was in criminal justice of all things, <laughs> uh, because my plan was if it, if nothing happened over there, I was going to move out and maybe get into law enforcement. But uh, none of that worked out. Uh, I started progressing in the in the plant itself. Well, what I like about your book, you say when most people, you know, they put the key in or they key the ignition switch, uh, you know, a lot of stuff we just put our foot on the brake and hit a button and the engine starts these days. Uh, they don't have a clue of what's involved in the engineering, you know, the technology, the equipment, the human labor, even obviously these heavy manufacturing plants back when you worked in them, I mean, they're dangerous places. Uh, they are. Uh you know, there's a lot of safety in place, and I'm sure, uh, you know, over the years, it's, it's, it's probably even improved. Uh, but when you're working in uh, a plant like uh, I was, a metal casting plant, where you've got 2,500-degree uh, molten iron flying around, wow. uh, and, and machinery of all kinds. In our shop, we had the machine tools, and in the, in the foundry, you had these big uh, uh, molding machines uh, that were knocking out two V8 engines in each uh, blocks in each uh, mold. They would go boom, 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 strip it and down the line, and that was a mold made, the bottom half. The same thing would happen to the top half. That's how fast it was. And it was two V8 blocks each time. It was, it was pretty impressive. Uh, but you had to be careful because uh, I saw guys get burned alive in there. I've seen guys uh, get caught inside the machines and get their arms crushed, you know. Right. I mean, it, it's uh, it was... <laughs> And guys took shortcuts, even though there was safety. Sometimes they, uh, they, they bypassed the safety trigger so they could work with one hand instead of two. You know, and they got a hand caught inside because they, they, they tripped one switch. You know, so it was a pretty interesting. So during the time you were there, of course, automobile industry was booming. It was just, uh, I mean, huge amounts of sales every year. I mean, and... Uh, Let's see, you were, when did you leave? What, what year did you leave? I left in 81. 81. So basically the heyday, the golden age. Even in 1999, you, you list that GM uh, U.S. vehicle sales, doesn't count the world, was over 5 million. That's pretty healthy. Mm-hmm. But what, what happened? 2012, we were this down 48%, down half well, of that. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, heavy manufacturing in this country was making a lot of money. This is my opinion. Okay, 
but that money wasn't going back into the plants. Our particular casting plant, as a matter of fact, didn't get a lot of renovation. They cleaned up the air. I mean, that was a positive. But it wasn't until maybe a couple of years before it really went downhill and closed, uh, they weren't investing in the plant. And so you had all these years in the 60s with all the W block engines and, you know, they, they had a corner on the market. Everybody was buying GM and the money didn't go back in. It was just like the steel plants in the Detroit areas. You go take a look at some of those back in the day when they had just closed out, they were ghosts. I mean, they were just ghosts of the past. They were the same way they were when they were built, you know, decades ago. And so you can't compete with the new factories and everything that are being built worldwide. Mm -hmm. And so GM fell victim to that in many cases. And then they started losing market share. And when the, when the slide started coming, because they weren't, I remember GM was making cars with the rubber mats in there and the, and the Japanese cars were coming over and they had cloth floorboards on them. <laughs> I don't know if you recall that or not. But they, the Japanese beat us and, and put a little comfort inside the cabin. Well, I grew up in an era growing up, uh, baby, being a, one of the early baby boomers. My father and uncle wouldn't let me look at a car unless it was uh, Ford or GM. I mean, you didn't look yeah. at the Japanese cars. <laughs> that my, was my un-American when I had. grew up. I, uh, yeah, I learned on his, uh, uh, with his Chevrolet, uh, my first car was a 55 Chevrolet, and the second one was yeah. a 57 Chevrolet, and then I had a, a, a Pontiac, a brand new one, Catalina, and in Buffalo, uh, it was funny, one day I was driving out to the country to visit the, on a weekend, uh, my dad had a country place, my brother has it now, and there was snow on the ground and everything, and opened up the trunk when we got there, and the whole trunk was full of snow. <laughs> and that was because the fender wells were all rotted out from the salt okay. and everything yeah. over a couple of years. You know, That's so. right. That was the old days. So we had, so yeah, so we had to shovel, shovel off the, the, the trunk of the vehicle because the, you know, the metal didn't hold up to the northern weather. So in July of 2009, were you shocked when General Motors filed Chapter 11? Uh, not shocked because we, you were hearing the rumblings about it. You know, and I thought that when I first heard, I said, well, that's a good, a good opportunity for them to, to straighten out their business. In fact, a lot of businesses that go through that come out sure, stronger. Sure. Uh, reorganizing debt. Yeah. You know, and taking... However, that did not take place. So what's your view of the whole thing with the government just jumping in and taking over? That's, that's the, that's, that's, you know, you got uh, guys like Trump going in the, in the, in the uh, White House all the time. Right. Uh, there's there's a, a political overtone to the whole thing. The union boss. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, he's not the only one, but it's sure. that's that's a way to to preserve the base. Aren't we doing that to uh, a lot of things today? That's right. It's all. It seems to be not so much about productivity of the country. It seems to be about votes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you referred earlier about uh, people pushing a button and uh, they don't realize it goes into making a vehicle. Uh, a lot of people don't always see a new model show up for 2013. You know, that was on a drawing board in 2010. And mm. the decision to make it was probably even before that. Mm. So yeah. the industry, you know, 
to, to be honest about it, is has a tough job because they got to figure out what are people going to want to buy three, four years down the road. Now, that's, I think, tightened up because all the computers and everything, uh, they can generate, you know, uh, a new car and all the molds and everything really quickly with, with the technology they have today. Uh, but they still do forward planning, and by the time they make uh, have the car all figured out, all the tooling has to be changed, all the handling and everything. I mean, people that go to see uh, an assembly plant, for instance, will always come out of that plant just dumbfounded by what they see. And they're only getting getting a cursory look, but they're seeing all these overheads and all these parts coming right. in. You know, the car comes out with these kind of wheels and this kind of color and this kind of interior. I mean, it's amazing, you know. But what's what's great about all of this is that it's just we should be so thankful for government leadership that gave us the Chevy Volt. I mean, it saved GM. <laughs> I, <laughs> sorry, seen, sorry. I live, in, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I've seen one <laughs> on the road. Well, they're all throughout my neighborhood. They're parked in, no, they're not. <laughs> $7,500 of taxpayer money. To subsidize the sale, that that's really competitive. Uh, that's really competitive, isn't it, business? Well, and then again, you know, we just bailed them out, and we, and we haven't been paid back for that, and now we're supposed to pay for seventy five hundred for every one of those sales. Uh, you know, and what what's going to be the uh, future of that vehicle? I mean, yeah, uh, you know, forty miles is not a lot of miles to drive. Oh my goodness! In today's world, you know, the, the amount of running you know around we do, yeah. You're talking, uh, you know, if you want to put a little safety factor in there, you might be talking, uh, you know, third, you know, 15 miles each way. But there is a competitor out there that nobody knows, that most people don't know very much about. And they, what, do 200 miles? What's the competitor? Yeah. Uh, Tesla Motors. Tesla Motors. Yeah, that's look, a... Look, look them up. It's that's, a a household, that's a household word, isn't it? Tesla Motors. Yeah, everybody Tesla. knows he's, about uh, that. He's, he's, a, he's a, a Mr. Electricity, isn't he? Yeah. So it's all there, but for some reason, uh, I guess, you know, it's not greasing the right hands. So the money isn't being uh, distributed well enough to have the right battery at General Motors. It's just, I'm sure that's really frustrating to you. I'm sure you were a very loyal employee. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, everybody, uh, everybody in the place, uh, not everybody, uh, most people that, that go in there, uh, that I knew uh, wanted to do the best job that they could do. Uh, the problem came in in, in uh, favoritism. Uh, it came in with, uh, you know, stretching the rules. And I was part of that. I was part of the 45-minute lunch instead of 30 minutes, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, you all get part of that. And then when you try to make the changes to make to tighten the ship, it's like war. You know, so once you once you it's it's no different than a uh, a community association. Once you veer off the CC and R's, it's hard to get it back. And the same thing in a in a in a business. Once you veer off from hey, these are our rules and regs. You don't do that. You let it slide. Somebody else comes in and tries to tighten it up. All heck breaks loose. Well, this book really gives everyone an inside look into. The great days of GM, and then also how the problems started to come in till eventually 
you know, here's the government, and as we jokingly call it, government motors today, and not general motors, but it, it is what it is, and Jim Serafin, the author in Career Reflections from Inside a Corporate Giant, 1964 to 1981. Jim, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's available on uh, Author House, uh, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Uh, just go on any, any one of those and type in my last name, Seraphin, and that'll take you right to it. It's easier than the title. That's S-A-R-A-F-I-N, Seraphin. Well, thank you, Jim, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Tugginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Become a More Positive Person, Three Practical Skills to Improve Self-Confidence. And the author is Shirley Brackett Matei, and Shirley joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Shirley. Good afternoon to you. How are you? Well, we're going to be even better because you're going to help us understand the importance of becoming a more positive person and also how to do it. And you're just not going to give us principles. You're going to tell us stories about how you've turned people's lives completely around, haven't you? Absolutely. I was a high school teacher. I taught 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. My subject matter was family life, but I had a feeling kids were just as doomed when they walked out as when they walked in. 
and I did not like that. I wanted kids to have something of great value so that it would direct their lives. I was into reading biographies, great place to start, because when you read biographies, there's something in each story that says they had something to work with, but it wasn't, it doesn't matter where you're born, it doesn't matter where your parents are from, it doesn't matter about money, it matters about your own personal drive. Kids understand they had to do that. The point I tried to make is most kids blame others. Sure. They don't know it, but that's one of the hang-ups. And so I said, this is not about blaming mother, father, me, your principal, anybody. This is about learning to deal with you. And so we went through uh, lots of little games and what have you to kind of break down the, the, the game playing so they got to know each other. And I spent about three to five days, depending on the groups, to teach them the skills because there are three basic skills. The first thing I had to teach them is you cannot talk anything but positive. And I said, I don't mean to ever be ugly to you, but if you ever catch me, Here's a little bell. Would you ring this <laughs> bell if you ever catch me saying something to you? And, of course, that was just an invitation. <laughs> to ring the uh, bell. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because the kid's like, well, can I ring it on somebody else? And I said, why? Well, I, I think that's okay. <laughs> so we got the game going. And in about three days, they understood. It became a safe classroom simply because I did not allow it. I I said, you can't talk bad. I can't talk bad to you, but neither can you talk bad to me. That was a rule. And it became part of the lesson as they learned. There was a, a, a poster in the book. You can find it. And it talks about the way speak, people speak. I was on my way to a play and this little woman, I was talking about what I was doing, and she said, I've got something you will need. This came from a hairdresser in Canada from the 20s, and she sent it to me. And it was wonderful. It taught me, you can't say, I won't, I can't, I wish, I don't know. That was the, the bottom of the level. Then there's, I don't know, I, I maybe, you know, there was a middle action, but there's three positives. If you want to do something, you talk yourself into it. You say the words, I can do that. I will do that. And then later on, you have the accomplishment. I did it. And that is the feeling you want kids to have. I had a little girl, she said, Ms. Brackett, I cannot tell you how much that helped me because I was looking at my feet all the time. I wasn't joyous. I wasn't happy. I didn't see anything good. But she said, here is a little something I started, and I, I don't want to keep it. I want you to know I got it out, and I finished it, and I got my smile when I got it done. And that was a nice little thank you that I was on the right track teaching them to accomplish things. That's skill one. The second skill is even easier. 
how can you teach kids to recognize the value of visions? Kids oftentimes drop out of school. So my big challenge was to help them see themselves graduating. So we had a little session and we talked about how do you see yourself graduating? What is it you see? Is there something you know about you graduating? Well, here they are, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. And a lot of them didn't really understand. You have to picture yourself doing something that has graduation in it. If you do, you can put up with the yayas that people give you. You can stand it. You can get through anything because you know you have your goal. The way I also like to describe the vision is it has two parts. There's a beginning part, like if you're going to paint a room. You have to see yourself dismantling the room. You have to go buy the paint. You have to use the tape to make it sharp. (laughs) You have to do all the preparatory work. Then you go through the final thing of painting the room. Then you have to put it back together. You have to take off that tape. You have to put the pictures back, the curtains, whatever you do to make the room more presentable. So the, the visionary part has two parts, a beginning part and an end part. And I often attribute, look at the dime. It has a heads and a tails. And that's the way you have to look at goals. They have a beginning and they have an end. And you have to have two pictures to see it started and to see it finished. And I like the way you simply uh, help people understand that because you said, you know, if you say the word bus, you don't see B-U-S-S, you see in your mind a bus. That's right. Visualize Because the mind doesn't see in pictures, I mean in words. No. It sees the pictures. It sees pictures. That's right, and that's what you want them to understand. They have to see themselves in some kind of a vision where they are performing the graduation. It can be riding down the car with the car painted up. I don't care. It has to be their vision of themselves graduating. What makes them feel good about it? And they did like that. The third thing is a simple little idea. How can you make kids understand the value of just writing things down? What happens in life, and I found this to be true, is if you don't know what you're doing, you're doing somebody else's goals. You have to know what you want. And it doesn't seem real that a a back of an envelope can do it. You can have a fancy notebook. You can have the... A day planner, it don't matter. You have to sit down and force yourself to think, what do I want to accomplish today? The first little idea I talked about is six goals. If you can sit down and write down six things you'd like to do, that's the beginning. Keeps you motivated. And I even learned something this past year that I thought was fascinating. If you do number one, You don't have two, three, four, and five. You have to have a new number one. I thought that was kind of a fascinating way to look at it. So you begin to see goal setting helps you keep yourself motivated. What happens is a mind is overwhelmed with so much to do. So you have to know the big thing is harnessing today. 
everybody talks about how do you do that. Well, you have to know what you want. <laughs> and that is a struggle for a lot of people. They just don't have the understanding. It starts with learning to write down little simple goals, and then eventually you'll begin to see a bigger goal come out of that. Does that help at all? That helps. It certainly, if you uh, fail, well, let's see, what is that saying? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. That's right. You have to do the planning so you are working on your goals, not somebody else's. And uh, we are just so caught up in so many things. The TV, a walk, you know, just doing something. We get away from our goals. We have to recognize the most important thing is what we say, say and do for ourselves. You can do other things, too, but you have to keep your priorities in line. And I encourage people to do that, to just recognize you need a little notebook, a little something to write things down on. And like I say, it doesn't matter what you write down because that's thrown away and you get another one next day. So <laughs> that's the good part. Now, anything else we need to talk about? Well, I like what you say about this uh, saying positive things because it's just natural, I guess, in all of us. You know, we're going to complain. We're going to blame. We're, you know, we talk about our aches and pains. And, and instead of just really thinking through and using the more positive words that uplift us because the yeah. negative things just drag us down. I mean, right. that doesn't make us feel good at all. Yes, now like this this message today, you know, I've known this girl since she was 16 years old, and I this is my birthday today. And she called me, she said, I just want you to know I think about you all the time, but I'm taking today to stop and say thank you. Oh, that's pretty good. If you haven't seen her, I haven't seen her in about, oh, maybe seven years. It's been a while. Mm -hmm. her, her twins are 17 years old, and I know they were probably... 10 the last time I saw them. So life has changed for her, and she has she's accomplished at this point, finishing her degree, got straight A's now. Well, that's that wonderful. Good? What a happy birthday present to you. I mean, it is. And, and we're going to meet in Little Rock next, uh, the, the 5th of July, and have dinner. I, I just need to see this family. They're just very important to me. So that's the good stuff. I have students that I am in contact with that I have encouraged and kept motivated with over the years. That They call me and I call them. They're, they're not my students anymore. They're my friends. So that's a good thing. What do you mean by this? You say, when I am blue, I go to my blessing inventory. What's your blessing inventory? How does that help you? Okay. Very important in life to recognize there is more good in your life than you realize. And I took, and you can take any 12 things, you can cut it up any way you want to, but I did this, and kids hated this assignment. What do you mean? You want us to write down 144 things? I said, yes, that's, that's the deal. I said, but it doesn't take long, and I started talking, and I said, what are some friends that you like? Can you name 12 friends? Have you got some events in your life that you appreciate? Tell me something good about your parents. What's wonderful about our weather? What's good about our economic system? 
or the the things that are happening in the world today. You can look at the bad, and you can listen to the news, but I'm telling you, it'll drag you down. You have to know how to find the good. And if they did that, what happened was an immediate change of pace. Because what kids have done is they've learned to blaster and postpone and talk about the bad stuff. They do not know to praise the good. And I said, what you need to do now is go around and thank people for being a part of your life and give them the appreciation they deserve. And so that's what it was all about. And when I get blue, I truly know I need to go back and redo my own blessings. It's not a permanent thing. It's something you can do every couple of years. But you just make a list of 12 things, then go back and fill them in. And it raises your self-confidence level up immensely when you do that. Because you begin to realize you've been taking things for granted. If you've ever been in a relationship where you were taken for granted, you know that is not a good thing. So it, it's very helpful to realize how much you appreciate the people and everything that happens in your life. One, Does that answer that question? That answers that question. One review of your book said it very directly and simply. A director of vocation education at a high school, she said, when you have read this book, you will receive the insights to take control of your life and move forward. I can't say that any better. Well, that, and that was a friend of mine that let me tell you. <laughs> at lunch one day, she said, bad things happened to us. Just very bad things. I tell you, we took our car in to be fixed. And before <laughs> they got it out, they ruined it again. Now, that's a negative comment and then another negative comment. When... She understood what I was talking about. She came back and told me that was the greatest learning lesson she had ever had because she began to realize there were a lot of good things happening, but she couldn't see them because all she knew to do was complain and, and feel sorry for herself. That's what you have to do is help people realize there's a lot of good going on. And it energizes you when you're saying positive things, I'm sure, right? That's true. It does. Well, That's Shirley, exactly right. Shirley, we really appreciate you being with us. It, her, the author's name, Shirley Brackett Matei. That's spelled M-A-T-H-E-Y. It is French. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. Yeah. And the author, uh, the title of her book, Become a More Positive Person. Shirley, tell us how to get your book. Well, there's a couple of ways to get it. You can contact me. I have a few on hand. <laughs> But you can also go to Amazon.com, and you can order the Kindle, which is $4. That's pretty good. And then there is the softcover book, which is thirteen ninety five, and then there's a hardcover book that's close to 25 But you can buy whatever you feel is appropriate. Very important you learn the lessons. I put the material in there, but it's your job to take it and use it. Hope you like the book. Well, thank you very much, Shirley, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off? 
Fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, President of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, In the Shadows, the memoir of a professional civil engineer. And Joe joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, incredible career. What, 50 years? 50 years as a civil engineer? Uh, yes, I... Uh... I guess you would say I'm a senior citizen now. <laughs> <laughs> You're a senior civil engineer, that's for sure. There yes. you go. <laughs> well, you say this about your book. It's the human side of my 50-year professional civil engineer career. It's a story of my business and personal life that describes the interaction of family, social, and political events that shaped your technical career. So I, obviously in 50 years, uh, you, you've seen a lot of changes, not only professionally but across the board uh yeah that that is correct and uh what uh became evident to me when i retired was that uh i started uh contemplating my career and uh started connecting the dots and uh it dawned on me hey you know this might be an interesting story and uh it might be useful to uh you know, enlighten the uh, emerging uh, civil engineers and those young engineers that are in practice in the uh, in the various uh, sub areas of uh, of civil engineering that uh, you know, like including business and construction and design. That uh, it would be a, a useful guidepost for them. So that's uh, what gave me the motive to uh, to make it happen. <laughs> 
Well, as you look over the next, let's say, 12, 13 years to the, uh, let's, let's see, 2025, I guess that's 12 years from now, um, what do you see for the future civil engineer uh, perspective person? I mean, what do you see for them? Well, uh, civil engineering has always been the uh, building out infrastructure and maintaining infrastructure. And, of course, as, as my book points out, the, um, when I was starting out, the, um, the big areas of, of design and construction were in uh, water and uh, waste uh, and, um, and air pollution. Those were you know, known collectively as our environmental laws. Well, fast forward to today and going to the next, uh, you know, 10, 15 years, the buzzword is sustainability. And uh, what that means as, as the uh, civil engineering is developing his career is that he's going to be wrestling with uh, having to do uh, more with less, less resources, because frankly, uh, you know, our population in the next in his lifetime, will uh, will double in the United States from you know 300 to uh, 600 million, and on a world stage, which <clears throat> we're much more connected now, will go from seven to uh, 10 billion. So he has an amazing um, opportunity to um, use his skills in a very noble profession that. Uh, Will help you know help mankind and help his fellow man and make make life or continue to make life uh, you know much more efficient and enjoyable to live. How did it all start, Joe? How did you get involved in civil engineering? Well, uh, of course, my dad uh, was a civil engineer, and uh, so I was second generation and. Uh, it, you know, in those days, it was expected, kind of, that you would follow in your dad's profession. So uh, <clears throat> that was always the um, the goal, but I hadn't totally made up my mind. And uh, then along the way, I uh, I was a ardent reader of the Saturday Evening Post, and uh, there was a serial article in there of uh, a particular engineer, a guy by the name of Botts, that traveled the world and solving challenging problems in heavy construction related to the, you know, the Caterpillar Tractor Company, although that was a fictitious name that uh, that he used in his book. And uh, it, it really uh, got my uh, adrenaline flowing. And then right about that same time in the same magazine, um, Stanford University, um, had a new program in heavy construction. So, uh, you know, I put two and two together, and and that's uh, where I went to get my graduate degree. And from there, I was fortunate to, uh, you know, work in in very uh, exciting heavy construction projects. And uh, that's uh, how the first part of the book... uh, Evolves. It, it will show the, um, you know, the young engineer that that one, uh, you know, your education uh, allows you to be very flexible in 
in what the opportunities are. It allows you to travel, and it allows you to, uh, you know, combine a, a, a interesting and exciting career with, um, at the same time, uh, growing a, a family that, you know, I'm very proud of, and uh, this kind of goes along with the story in the book. So your first part is about your, I guess, starting out in your military career, and then uh, after uh, that and working for a major company. But then your part two, uh, what is that focused on? Well, part two is uh, when I uh, leave uh, my, uh, you might say, my uh, first uh, business career, which was fairly successful, and and one of the uh, takeaways of that portion of the book is that even though you can be in a very successful business and engineering relationship, you know, there may be corporate reasons that uh, will make you have to change, and in my case, um, as the book explains, uh, there, there was things that made it uh, necessary that I uh, look for other opportunities and that, that took me to Texas and uh, ended up in Houston, Texas. And uh, it was almost coming full circle from where I started out in the space program in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And now about 18 years later, I end up in uh, just south of Houston at the... Uh, NASA Bay, which is the um, you know the space one of the major space uh, control centers in the program, and uh, my objective was to um, you know start a uh, a new uh, company there, a servicing petrochemical industry because on the ship channel in in Houston that was the uh, you know the major industry. So it was twofold. It, uh, I was doing two things, and this is where the flexibility of a, of a civil engineer comes in, or, or at least the education part of it, is uh, I was learning a new industry, which is petrochemical and all the major refiners. And at the same time, I was in the uh, the birthplace, you might say, of the not the birthplace, but the, the major practitioner of the... Um, the open shop movement, which was kind of uh, spearheaded by uh, Brown and Root, and which is now Halliburton. So, uh, in a very short time, uh, working for a uh, company headquartered in uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, I uh, built a successful little operation there. <laughs> and then again, because of the climate and the um, uh, pending fall of the economy in that area, we um, looked had to look west. And, you know, I, I was like the uh, the original uh, American uh, heading west. So we we started in New York and then Texas and then uh, we headed west to um, to California. But uh, in Texas, I. Uh, you know, was involved in a, a couple of interesting business lawsuits that, uh, that I'm sure would uh, 
would interest, uh, you know, the re- reader. And uh, I built a major uh, addition to Monsanto plant that, uh, you know, was very interesting and also worked in uh, in a Neamico re- refinery as a subcontractor uh, for uh, in Texas City, Texas. So, uh, you know, in a very short time, uh, you know, the family and... Uh, Myself, in my profession, uh, had a great time in, in Houston, Texas, and, uh, and learned a lot of things that, that was very helpful to me uh, that uh, gave me great advantage when, when we moved on to California. And there you built what you call a merit shop company. Now, what is that? Well, um, back in the 50s, um, there was a gentleman or a group of gentlemen out of Baltimore, Ohio, that uh, were kind of disenchanted. In fact, most of the construction work at the time was going to uh, to union contractors. And in fact, and that's when I started out, um, almost 85% of the workforce was was union. But during the 50s, 60s, and on into the 70s, um, the Taft-Hartley Act, as it was originally um, written, was challenged on various fronts, namely uh, prevailing wage, a secondary boycott, etc. And uh, it opened up the uh, guiding goal or principle of the merit shop that if a contractor is qualified... Uh, he should be hired on his merits, hence merit shop contract, and doesn't have to have a union affiliation to be able to bid to a customer or a government entity and, and do the work. And, uh, and the driving force at that time, because it was the economy, it was a structural change in the construction industry, and it basically was driven by the business roundtable because they had all this work, um, and of course in Texas it was in, you know, petrochemical, and they just didn't have enough people to do the work. So they were looking, you know, to uh, for contractors to come in, and they were willing to pay so much an hour to train uh, new prospective employees in the various trades to create this labor force that... Uh, would give them, you know, the quantity of labor that um, that they needed to execute these these much larger and more complex projects that were, you know, starting to happen and then would continue to happen and build. So the merit shop then is is strictly that opens up an opportunity that if you're qualified uh, and can be competitive and do quality work, then you should be able to, uh, to come. And if you're the low bidder, uh, you should be able to do the work. And then the last part of your book, you focused on, uh, after so many years of being active in uh, engineering and heavy industrial construction, you, you launched your own consultant company. Yeah, I did. I, I was getting to that age. I, I, I think I was around. 5560 in there and uh the um, you know 
construction goes in peaks and valleys. And uh, while I was in Texas, I I was at I was at the downside. Uh, you know, the the boom years had, uh, were coming to an end, and that was the other thing that drove me to California. Well, the same thing happened over the period of time that I was an active contractor in California. The uh, you know the refineries, which was my main market, had put out these big uh, uh, upgrades and uh, maintenance contracts, and that was winding down. So uh, it just seemed a good time to me. I had a lot of contacts, and I had done a lot to uh, uh, promote uh, parallel training for, uh, you know, the construction industry and for, for my customers. And so uh, with all these contacts, it just seemed uh, the timing was right. And my uh, my family at that point, and you know, based on our age, we just didn't want to move anymore, and even though I had the opportunity. But uh, the company I was with uh, decided that, that they wanted to uh, pull out of the Los Angeles market. And... Uh, for them to do that, I would have had to move. So uh, I said, no, I've got all these contacts and uh, need my my services uh, here. I can give a lot to the customers. And uh, so I launched my uh, JRB and Associates. And uh, as luck would have it or whatever, I was at an ASCE meeting one night and uh, <laughs> learned that... Uh, the, the transportation agency that oversees, um, you know, in engineering and construction as well as, as the transportation uh, operational part of, of the industry in Los Angeles was uh, looking for a uh, consulting um, estimator to uh, to help them uh, close out a, a, a troubled project in. Uh, I uh, submitted my uh, resume, and as luck would have it, uh, Parsons, who was the uh, construction manager, hired me, and I, I was only hired for six months. <laughs> and one thing led to another, and ten years later, I, uh, that's where I retired from. <laughs> six months to ten years. That's uh, quite, a, quite a span of literally success, so... Your story, as you say, uh, throughout the story, you call them the three C's, character, capability, and capacity. People have to read to find out what that means in your book. Thus, In the Shadows, that's the title, the memoir of a professional civil engineer. We've been listening to Joe Bewley. Joe, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's available on, uh, from all the, uh, the normal outfits. Yeah, Authors, uh, book publishers, uh, Barnes and Noble, you know, Author House, Amazon.com, and then you can get it in the in the ebook uh, uh, version. And uh, you just you know just go online under Google and and type in my name or uh, the name of the book in the shadows, and it'll pop up on uh, on Amazon.com. You have a uh, as the readers will will discover, they, they they let you open up the book and you can read read select pages that, that mm -hmm. give you a little right. flavor of what the book's all about. That's great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. 
Yeah, and I uh, I appreciate the interview, Steve. Enjoyed it. <laughs>